Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for giving us your son. Jesus, thank you for dying. Holy Spirit, help us to see the death. We long for a real experience with you. Help us to put away all frustrations, all distractions, all of our hardness of heart, all of our rebellion that would keep us from seeing you and give us fresh hearts and fresh ears and fresh minds. Amen. Amen. Would you please open up to Matthew chapter 27? It's on page 834 in the Bibles we said around the room. When you look at the cross, what do you see? Surely if you would ask anybody in the first century that lived in Palestine, whether they were Jew or Gentile, they would have responded the same way. They would have said, I see a criminal. Crucifixion was a form of public execution that was invented by the Persians and perfected by the Romans. And it was a way to kill somebody as a way of making a public statement. It was reserved for low-life criminals or enemies of the state. Low-life criminals such as thieves and robbers, if you stole somebody's donkey or their possessions, the government would often have you publicly crucified as a way of trying to eliminate the crime that happened in the city. This is what will happen to you if you become a criminal. It was also reserved for enemies of the state, those who would rebel against the authority of Rome. If a city were to try to overthrow the Roman authorities, they would sometimes come in and crucify every person in the city, man, woman, and child, and line them up on a road leading into the city. It was a way of making a public statement. You have no power here. And so whether you were Roman or whether you were Jewish living in Palestine, you would have understood crucifixion to be something reserved for uh, rebels, traitors, condemned criminals, and those who deserve to be humiliated and cursed by God. Yet tonight, as we look at the cross, we see Jesus, the Lord of life and the essence of holiness. Nowadays, we hang crosses in our house. We have cross necklaces we use them as decorations. But that would have never been done before the death of Jesus. That would have been like wearing a guillotine around your neck. Or having an electric chair put on your wall. Or having a noose as a decoration for your house. You see, crucifixion was for criminals. And it's important that we see that. When you look at the cross, what do you see? Matthew tells us he sees a criminal. And so for Holy Week, we've been talking about the real Jesus. On Palm Sunday, we talked about Jesus the prophet, 
the revealer of truth, the essence of truth. He is the truth. Amen, church? On Sunday, Easter Sunday, we're going to worship Jesus as Lord. But today we see Jesus as our substitute. Dying in our place, a criminal's death. And you need all three aspects of Jesus to have the real Jesus. Some people want just a teacher, Jesus. Some people want a king. But unless he's your substitute, you don't have the gospel. And so what I want to point out tonight is basically five ways in which Jesus reveals himself as the substitute criminal. First of all, he is accused as a criminal. Verses 11 through 14. It says, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you've said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Verse 14, but he gave him no answer, not even a single to a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. The governor was greatly amazed as Jesus stood there silently. He was greatly amazed because there was all these accusations coming against Jesus. That he was a blasphemer, that he was a traitor, that he was a rebel against God. And Jesus didn't say a word. He opened not his mouth. Though he was innocent, he was accused as being a criminal and he opened not his mouth. And it was amazing to Pilate. Because this is not human nature. Even from childhood. We have many teachers in this uh, church, and, and they talk about how uh, little kids at school, they'll say, Johnny took my pencil, and what's Johnny going to say? Nuh-uh. And Johnny's going to make a defense for how he ended up with the pencil. Even Adam and Eve in the garden, when God came to Adam, he said, what did you do? And Adam said, well, the woman you gave me made me do it. And then Eve, God said, what about you? And she said, the snake made me do it. Even when we're guilty... We like to push off blame, but Jesus, though he is innocent, is accepting the blame. And what he's doing here is he's displaying the intensity of his commitment towards God the Father and to us. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7, which is going to be on the screen. It says this, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus opening not his mouth is his expression of commitment to God the Father and to you. Here's how. The deepest forms of love are demonstrated through commitment when life is unfair or really difficult. And if Jesus were to have opened his mouth when he was unfairly being accused, he wouldn't have accomplished the mission that he and God the Father had set out to do since before the foundation of the world, which was save humanity. He would have gotten off the hook. All he had to do was just say, no, that didn't happen. And he could have gave some reason and Pilate would have let him go, but he opened not his mouth because he was committed to this mission of God. And he was also committed to you. You see, this is why we make vows when we get married. 
You make a vow when you get married because you want to express a future sense of love. Now, I know you go to a lot of weddings and a lot of people make vows, and it's like there's lovey-dovey expression of their current love for each other, which we can all safely assume you currently love each other because you're getting married. A vow is supposed to be a declaration of future love. A declaration of, I am committed to you, even on unfair and difficult circumstances. For better or for worse. In riches or in poverty, in sickness or in health. If unfair life comes our way, I'm still going to be committed. And that's what Jesus is doing here. In not opening his mouth, he's fulfilling his vow to God. And he's fulfilling his vow to you. Now this here is in major contrast to the devotion of the disciples, isn't it? The disciples, they all said, we love you, Jesus. Peter, on Thursday night, said, Jesus, if something goes down, I'm going to be willing to die for you. All the other disciples said, yeah, we'll die for you too. But as soon as Jesus was about to get arrested, what did the disciples do? Bailed. And then Peter, when he had the opportunity to stand up for Jesus and associate with Jesus, he denied him three times. Judas, one of the followers of Jesus, followed Jesus for three years, even did miracles and saw miracles of Jesus, was devoted to Jesus, but at the end of the day ended up selling him for 30 pieces of silver, which was the price of a slave. Their devotion to God was all talk. But here with Jesus, not opening up his mouth, we see a man who is committed to God and it's not all talk. And why is that important? Because you and me, were like Peter. You and me, we're like Judas. You're like, I'm not selling out Jesus. Or Jesus, you've sold Jesus for much less than 30 pieces of silver. We're going to sing a song today. Judas sold him for 30. I have sold him for less. We're like Peter coming to church on Sunday, lifting up our hands. I'm devoted to you. But as soon as we face troubled waters, we bail on Christ. So Jesus stands and he fulfills the commitment to God on our behalf. And so when you see Jesus being accused, what I want you to see is his love. The love for the Father. And also his love for you. You know, many people in, uh, young people in the United States, they join gangs because they desperately want to belong to a family. And there's a gang, um, there's a gang code. It's the code of silence. That if another gang member were to get caught and arrested, you, at a devotion to that person, are supposed to have a code of silence. You're not supposed to rat anybody out. It's a, it's a way of, of expressing love. And here we see Jesus doing the same thing. Though he is not a gang member and though he's never broken any laws, he's facing the punishment that you deserve and he's not ratting us out. He's being accused. So see his love. And then we're going to see in the next paragraph, we're going to see Jesus being exchanged as a criminal. And here we're going to encounter Jesus's grace. It says in verse 15, out the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, he was still sitting on the judgment seat. His wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. 
the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him over to be crucified. This is Matthew giving an illustration of what the entire gospel is about. And Matthew does that through this narrative. He's, a lot of, he's describing history, but he's doing it in a way that, that paints a bigger picture. And here's what the gospel is all about. An innocent man is condemned so the guilty can walk free. There's an exchange. Jesus is exchanged for the criminal Barabbas, who is a notorious murderer. He's exchanged. And, and, and Matthew's audience would have understood what was happening here because every year the Jewish people had this, this festival they called, it, it was a day of atonement. It was a high holiday. And, and what they would do is they would gather once a year to acknowledge that they have guilt and sin before God and that they need God's forgiveness. And what they would do is they would take two goats and one of those goats, the first goat, they would place their hands on the goat, confess all their sins on that poor little goat. And then the priest would send them into the wilderness. And it was a picture of exchange. This goat is bearing our sin and then he's taking it away so that we can be free. And that is what is happening here. Jesus is the innocent man, yet he's functioning as our scapegoat. He is taking the blame. Barabbas is going free. And it comes at no cost to Barabbas. This was a great change of events for Barabbas' day. <laughs> he was condemned to death, but all of a sudden this Jesus character comes by and now he's a free man. And this is a picture of grace. So do you see his grace? When you read this story, sometimes you kind of want to yell at God, don't you? You're like, wait a second, this isn't fair. It shouldn't happen like this. How come the criminal is going free and the innocent man is being killed, let alone the Christ? And then you hear God whisper back to you, yeah, but that's grace. Grace is God's free gift coming towards you that cost him everything. And so grace is a bit offensive to us at first, because first of all, we recognize it's not fair. Barabbas did nothing except be a criminal, and now he gets to go free. But that's what grace is. Christianity is all about grace. It's not that you earn brownie points with God and get God to like you. It starts and it ends with grace. God loves you. Why? Because of grace. Not because you're better than your neighbor. Not because you're not a murderer. Not because you do your best to follow the Ten Commandments. Not because you come to church. Not because you open your Bible. Not because you give to the church. God loves you because of grace. It's a free gift. And that's a little offensive because it means you can't earn anything from God. And some of us think we're really special. Like if God had an A-team, we're like, I would probably be on the A-team. <laughs> No, it's grace. 
the great things you do for God earn you no greater standing in his presence. In fact, in Christianity, the great things we do for God are not meant to do anything to earn something from God. They're just supposed to be a response of thankfulness back to God for what he's already given us. It's grace. But grace is also offensive because it means if we're to look at ourselves in the, in the story and ask, who are we in this story? We're not Jesus. We're Barabbas. And, in, and unless you can recognize that you're Barabbas, you don't get Christianity at all. And you're probably not understanding grace because only criminals get grace. And so there's this exchange that happens. And so at first it's offensive because we're just like, what? this isn't fair. And, and what do you mean I can't earn anything? But then when you can accept it, it's also refreshing. Because it means whether you have a good day or a bad day, God still feels the same about you because he's given you grace. One of the things I do is I read my Bible and I journal how I'm doing that day. And it's, I'm not a great journaler, so I have like two sentences. But n- normally I start out and it's like, I'm, most mornings are just like, I feel awful. I feel like I screwed up. I feel, I, I feel like I'm wrong. I feel like I'm, I'm terrible. Every once in a while, I'm like, God, I'm doing great. But you know what the good news is? It doesn't matter if I'm having a good morning or a bad morning. It's all about grace. God's view of me is just the same, and that never changes because there has been a great exchange, Jesus for me, me for Jesus. And so we get to be free. And so when you see Jesus on the cross, I want you to see his grace. The next thing I want you to see is I want you to see Jesus' power. And this next section, what you're going to see is it's filled with irony. Now, irony, according to the New Oxford American Dictionary, which is going to be on the screen, is a literary technique originally used in Greek tragedy by which the full significance of the character's words or actions are clear to the audience or reader, although unknown to the character. We're going to see that here in this next uh, section, verses 27 through 30. It says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and they took a reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his own clothes. And they led him away to crucify him. What you have to understand is Matthew is describing this event as a coronation of a king. And D.A. Carson, I think, hits this very well. He says, the one who is mocked as king is actually the king. Not just the king of the Jews, the king of the whole world, and the king of kings. And so these soldiers are crowning him and robing him, and and they're mocking him, and they don't know that they're speaking truth. It's deep irony. Um, And then you see Jesus going away, and he gets taken away to be crucified. 
And where he's crucified in verse 37, it says a plate was laid upon him saying, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And then it says two robbers were crucified with him, one to the right and one to the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocking, mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And so here we see this king of kings being exalted to his throne, except his throne is not made of gold, it's made of wood. And it's shaped in the form of a cross. And he is sitting there, hanging there by nails. And people are mocking him. And they mock him as powerless. But the irony is the one they mock as powerless is full of power. And he's demonstrating his power right here. He's demonstrating his power because verse 42 says, He cannot save himself. He who saves others cannot save himself. And they don't know how right they actually are. If he were to save himself, what it would mean? He wouldn't be saving others. But if he were to save others, it means he cannot save himself. It's deep irony. They're mocking him, but it's actually true. They're mocking him as if it's like this thing where he doesn't have power, but it's actually the truest demonstration of his full power that he stayed on the cross. Jesus here is redefining for us what kingship and authority and power looks like in this world. You see, our world loves to exalt ourselves. Our world defines power and displays power in ways of self-exaltation, self-fulfillment, self-pride, self-advancement. But Jesus displays power through emptying himself. Not through exalting himself and having others serve him. He lowers himself to serve others. And this is the display of his power. And in so doing, what has he done? He's established a kingdom that has advanced all over the world. Greater than Rome. Greater than any kingdom that's ever been and ever will be. And it came through humility, not through our definition of greatness. And so when you see Jesus on the cross, I want you to see his power. It's an otherworldly type of power. It's a humble power. And we're supposed to marvel at it and we're supposed to model it. This is why Jesus said, nobody can follow me unless they're willing to pick up their cross and follow me. And the cross was a form of humiliation. In other words, if you want to be one of Jesus' disciples and you want to live in the power of God, you have to be willing to be humiliated for the sake of others. Do you want to see the power of God? Then you have to die to your self-interest. Do you want to see the power of God in your marriage? Then stop thinking that marriage is about making you as the individual happy. Start serving the other. Die to your self-interest and you'll find happiness. Do you want to see power in your relationship with your kids? Then consider yourself a servant. 
Kids, do you want to see power, the power of God come into your house? Then stop being so selfish. Die to your self-interest and become a servant. Do you want to see power at your work? Stop trying to make it to the top. Start doing the things that nobody else wants to do. Do we want to see power in northern Nevada? Then we as the church have to stop living for ourselves. This is the power of God. And we see it with Jesus being humiliated like a criminal. Next, we see Jesus killed as a criminal. It says in uh, verse 50 that after Jesus was hanging there on the cross for a period of time, several hours, it says that he cried with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. It's a small line, but we can't skip over it too quickly. Jesus, the author of life, died. He was killed. He was murdered. This passage even says that he was destroyed. Death is the consequence for a criminal, not for the holy giver of life. But Jesus died. Romans 3 tells us the wages of sin is death. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, God had told them beforehand, if you eat of the tree that I'm telling you not to eat, you shall surely die. But when Adam and Eve did uh, eat of the tree, death didn't come right away. Instead, God killed an animal and clothed them. And then after that point, you see all these, it's really weird in the Old Testament. If you're not used to it, you just see all this death, all these sacrifices. And why is it? Because there has to be the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. There has to be a payment. There has to be death. I was talking with a friend years ago. His name was Kevin. We were at the gym. And he was like, Kyle, I just don't understand why Jesus can't just forgive. Like, why did, why did, why did there have to be death? Well, because there had to be a payment. Somebody had to pay. You see, there's no such thing as costless forgiveness. If I were to lend you $20,000, which I don't have $20,000, but if I were to lend you $20,000, and then I said, you know, just take it, do what you got to do, then pay me back. And you went out and you squandered all that money and you did reckless living and some stupid stuff. And I came back and I said, hey, you got that $20,000? You're like, you know what? I spent it all. I would have two choices. I could say, well, you need to figure it out and pay me back. Go borrow money from somebody else or go get another job and pay me back because there's a debt. Or I could say, I forgive your debt. But if I'm going to forgive your debt, what I'm willing to do is absorb the cost. This is why forgiveness is so difficult to do because it means you're willing to absorb the hurt that other people have done to you because there has to be payment. And so what we see Jesus being killed for is he's embracing our sin. He's all the sin, all the things that you've ever done from the time you were coming out of your mother's womb. He puts on his shoulders and then he's killed so that you can be forgiven because a payment needed to be made. And even when he cried out in a loud voice, the other gospels tell us that he cried out, it is finished, which can also be translated paid in full. The payment is made. And so this is a picture of the theological word that Paul uses in the book of Romans called propitiation. Can you say propitiation? Propitiation. It means a satisfaction of wrath. That there had to be an outlet. Like when somebody hurts you, 
There has to be an outlet for there to be real forgiveness. So I, I saw an illustration of this. A counselor was talking about um, working with people who've been deeply wounded by others and just can't get to the point of forgiveness. And, she, and I don't know if this is right or not. I'm not a counselor, but it's a great illustration. And she said, what I have them do is I have them go get a gym membership at a boxing club. And I say, I want you to go and I want you to take out your hurt and your anger and your frustration and all that pain that you have built up in you for the hurt that they've done to you. And I want you to take it out on the punching bag. And as they do that, and they do that consecutively, what they find is they've got a release. They've pummeled the bag, they've got a release, and now they can look to the person who's actually hurt them, and they can find space to forgive because there's been a release. That's propitiation. It's a release. It's a release of wrath. It's a release of payment. It's a pummeling. And so what it means for us is as Jesus was taking on our sin and he was being killed, guess what God the Father was doing? He was pummeling him with the wrath of God for the sin that we've committed, for the ways that we've broken God's heart. And that means two things for us. The first thing is this. It means that if you're a Christian and you're in Christ, you can stop pummeling yourself because it's already been done. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I'll sin against God. I'll do something. I'll, I'll backslide. I'll really screw up. I'll mess up. And then I think I have to wait like a period of three days before I can go and pray to God. You like me? Sometimes I have to feel like I, I have to go through like a living purgatory of beating myself up enough till I feel like then I, I can actually go and approach God. But the good news of the gospel is because Jesus cried out, it is finished. There's no purgatory. There's no payment that's needed because it's already paid. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you can stop beating yourself up. And it also means that you can stop beating others up. It means you can actually forgive. It means when you see that person at the grocery store who has deeply hurt you, you don't have to pummel them in your heart and then avoid them down a different lane. You can approach them in love because Christ has paid the price. And it also, when we see this, we see the justice of God. We see that God is committed to forgiveness, but he's also committed to not letting the guilty off the hook. So either they will be paid for in Christ or they will be paid for at a future judgment day. So this is why it's so important to be in Christ. But it also means we can forgive. Because God says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. I will repay so you don't have to. And I wonder if I'm just talking about this, if you can think of somebody that you need to forgive. Somebody that when their name comes up, you just want to start bad-mouthing them or talking about how they really hurt you. You can release that to God because God has already given justice to Christ. And then the last thing we see here is that Jesus is forsaken on behalf of criminals. It says in verse 45, now the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, limis bakhtenai. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling for Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And so what we see here is as Jesus is hung on the cross, he's hung up there at 9 a.m., but from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., darkness comes over the land. 
And there's only one other place in the Bible that this happens. Can you guys guess? The book of Exodus. And it's during the 10 plagues. When God um, was delivering his people with an outstretched arm, the ninth plague was the plague of darkness. It was a symbol of judgment. In the Bible, light is a symbol of God's presence, of God's pleasure. But the ninth plague to the Egyptians was a plague of darkness. And that preceded the last plague, which was the plague of the death of the firstborn son. And there was only one way to get out of the death of a firstborn son. And that was to slaughter a lamb and to put the blood on the doorpost of the house. And so what is unique about what's happening here with Jesus is it was the day of Passover when the Jews were celebrating this entire event of God delivering them out of Exodus. And so they would have had refreshing in their minds the the ninth plague, the plague of darkness. So when they saw the darkness come over, that's what they would have thought of. And guess what they would have thought of next? After this, a sun dies. And that's exactly what happened. At 3 p.m., Jesus gave up his spirit which was precisely the hour that the tradition says that you were supposed to slaughter the lamb at the Passover. Why? Because Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, what I want you to see is that darkness came over and and Jesus felt forsaken. He even cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where they killed Jesus was outside the city where the trash was. Inside the city was the temple, the presence of God, but they took him out to kill him. And then darkness came over and then he cries out to God. And for the first time and the last in all eternity, God doesn't answer. He was cursed. He was taken out. He was forsaken. Why? Why was he cast out? So that we can be brought in. Look at verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There was a curtain in the middle of the temple. God's special presence dwelt in the very center of the temple. It was called the Holy of Holies. It was this little cube of a box, and it was divided from the rest of the temple by a three-foot-thick curtain. And at the moment when Jesus died, after he was cast out, the curtain was torn from top to bottom, meaning it was God doing that. God coming down to us, And what it was also saying is now that he was cast out, you can have access to me and my special presence. So therefore, you don't have to go to a priest to have God hear your prayers. You can go straight to God because Jesus was cast out. You can be called a child of God because Jesus was thrown out as an enemy. He was forsaken so that you can be brought in. And then in verse 52, it says this. This is a really weird verse. Then the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into his holy city and appeared to many. So then it talks about this idea like the earth shook, and then these people rose from the grave and then went into the city. It's like a bunch of zombies came into the city of Jerusalem. And it's this really weird place and and scholars are debating about this, but don't think too critically about it. Just take it at face value. What's it saying? Those who were dead and cast out are now alive and brought in. When Jesus was cast out, the dead were made alive and then brought in. And this is exactly what happens when we belong to Christ. And so the last thing I want you to reflect on is this. When you see the cross, I want you to see 
his hospitality. Hospitality, as defined by the Bible, is when you're eager to welcome strangers. See how far Jesus was willing to go to welcome you. He was willing to endure the pains of hell to bring you in. And what this means about God is this. God does not just simply tolerate you. Like a lot of us, that's how we think about God. Isn't it true? Like, yeah, God just probably tolerates me. He's probably fed up with me. He's probably like my family or my friends who just, they have enough and they want to push me out. No, God eagerly wants you to be brought in. This is what he was willing to go through. God doesn't just tolerate you. He wants you. God likes you. There may not be a lot of people who like you, but God likes you. He wants you. You may feel unwanted everywhere you go, but what you can know in Christ Jesus is that you are wanted by God. He was willing to go through the pains of hell so that you could be brought in. This, my friends, is why Good Friday is called good. Because we're brought in to the love of Christ. So, with that, if you would, just open up your hands as a way of saying thank you to God. And let us pray. God, thank you for bringing us in. Jesus, thank you for being willing to be cast out. I can't imagine how painful that must have been. But you endured it for us. God, help us to really reflect on that because it's, we just so often feel unwanted. We feel like we have to say stuff or act, act a certain way or put on a certain face just to be accepted by other people. But God, we already have full acceptance from you because of Christ. Help us to live into this reality. Amen.